0: prayer here. Lord, as we just come to you now, thankful for the time to be here. Thankful for the time of fellowship afterwards. And we pray it could be fellowship that's just focused on you in all ways. Um, thankful for the time just to meet here freely and openly, just to talk of you. Encourage us, Lord. Grow us to go out and be a difference maker and always say and do through you in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 12. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do the whole chapter here. This is a fun one this morning. A lot of neat things going on in the church. Now, you've got to remember here what's been building up as the gospel is going out, the gospel has been going out to the Jews. Last week, the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles or anybody who is not Jewish. Any time the Lord moves forward in your life, the enemy is going to push back. Just, that's just a straightforward point we need to know. So what's happening here is the church is moving forward. Well, the enemy is going to push back. Same thing happens nowadays, 2,000 years later. You decide you want to go deeper in your walk with Christ. So you're going to get up tomorrow morning and start devotions. Guess what's going to happen tomorrow morning? The enemy's going to push back. You decide, you know what, no matter how those people act at work, I'm going to love them in Jesus. And you're going to show up at work tomorrow, and they're going to be the most awful people you've ever been around. That's just what happens. Be prepared for that. The enemy knows that he can discourage us and push us back. We'll probably quit. How often do we see in Christianity people verbally saying, I want things to be different. I want to grow. I want to go deeper. But when push comes to shove and it gets difficult... We falter. What's going on here in the church is there's now pushback. And the first thing you're going to see is you're going to see James being killed, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. We're introduced to James here. Now, this is James that you should know. He's one of the 12 original apostles. There's going to be another James that comes up in this chapter. That's the brother of Jesus. But this is James, one of the 12 original apostles, and he is now martyred by Herod. There's a lot of names here, and it's really easy to skip over this stuff, but it's important to kind of get the context. There are numerous Herods mentioned in the Bible. So let's talk about who this Herod isn't before we talk about who this Herod is. This is not the Herod that was the king at the time when Jesus was born. That would be his grandfather. This is not the Herod that was ruling when Jesus was crucified. That would have been his uncle. So this is the first Herod's grandson, and this is the second Herod's nephew. Now, the reason there's so many Herods is this. Israel, the Jews, were a difficult people to rule over. They constantly were rebelling and constantly fighting. So what Rome did was this. Since Rome was the power at the time, they picked a guy, and Herod, in this line of Herods, that has some Jewish blood in him, hoping that would appease the Jews. Look, we're letting somebody who has some Jewish blood in them rule over you. So these Herods would try to make Rome happy while also trying to keep the Jews happy. This Herod is realizing, hey, the more I persecute this church, Christians, the more the Jews like me. So this is all political. So therefore, if the Jews like me, they're not going to be getting upset at me, which makes Rome like me. So I kill James. The Jews really like this. So now I take Peter, and I'll wait to kill Peter later on. It's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's in the spring. So he decides to wait to after Passover, which would be the next event. And he says, I'll kill him after that. It was not really considered good to be killing somebody during the holy feasts. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus before Passover, since he's the Passover lamb. So he's going to wait to after Passover, put Peter to death. And guess what? The Jews would just keep loving him more and more and more. Now, Peter is quite in jail here. If you take a look at verse 4, he has four soldiers around him. Verse 6 gives us more detail. When Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So Peter had one guard chained to one arm, one guard chained to the other arm, and there was other guards guarding the doors. There was no way Peter was going to get out. Now, one other thing here we need to talk about is verse 2. James dies the brother of John. This is really interesting. James is the first of the 12 to be martyred. Died fairly early on considering the history of the church where church tradition teaches us that James, excuse me, John, his brother lived a very long time. Most people believe John lived up into his 90s. John wrote the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John and Revelation. John had quite the active ministry. It was used by the Lord a lot, but then we have James who's died very early on. Now this is not an original thought, this is not an original point. I heard this at a pastor's conference years ago, and it's something I still chew on to this day. The pastor simply asked, who had it better, James or John? And he says, we always like to think of it, John had it better. Well, why wouldn't we? We talk about John all the time. We read his gospels, we read his epistles, we read the book of Revelation, we talk about John. When's the last time in any spiritual conversation you brought up James? You don't. We don't even know James. You know, is this James that wrote the book of James? Probably not. Was this James that was the head of the early church in Jerusalem? Nope, that's a different James. Well, what James is this? This is the James that died really early. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Can you go with me to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. The question is, who had it better? We have to sometimes stop and reanalyze on what we consider good. You've heard me make this point many times before. The Bible promises you that God is good and does good. The problem is his definition of good is different than your definition of good. Who had it better? John, who lived 90 plus years, wrote five books of the Bible. Or James, that basically makes an appearance in the scriptures a few times and disappears. Well, you can make the case that James had it better. He got to go home right away. His journey is done. His work is done. I've used this example with you before, so if you've heard it before, please bear with me. Imagine you and your friend go into work, and as you get ready to go into work, they stop you at the door, and they say to you, hey, we don't need you today. But don't get frustrated. We're still going to pay you for the day. Just go on home. In fact, we're not going to pay you for the day. We're going to pay you double time. We're going to pay you triple time. We're going to give you the full day. Just go home and enjoy the rest of the day. And then your friend says, what about me? No, you need to stay and work. Do I get double time? Nope, we're just doing straight pay today. Who got it better? The guy that got sent home. Now kick the story up a notch. You and your friend go into work and the boss comes to you and says, hey, we're going to send you home, but we're not sending you home for the day. We're sending you home for good. You're firing me? No, no, we're not firing you. You get full benefits, full retirement, full package, full everything. You'll never have to work another day in your life and you get to go home now. And your friend says, what about me? Now you're working today. Who had it better? You did. The problem is we focus so much on this earth that we feel when somebody dies and goes home, look at everything they missed. And that is difficult because we start looking at things, well, they've missed out on this. James is up in heaven saying, I've missed out on that. Look at what you're missing out on. And that's difficult for us to grasp. If anybody's ever lost a loved one, you know how hard that is to say, Lord, I get it. If they were saved and born again, they're home in heaven. I get that. There's no more pain. There's no more worry. There's no more fear. But in my flesh, I really want them back. Who had it better? Well, John definitely had a great ministry on this earth. There's no doubt about that. But James, he had it better. His journey was done. His work was done. And he got to go home. Let's talk about this for a second. Mark chapter 10, please. Verse 35, it says, Then James and John, same two brothers there in Acts 12, the sons of Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That takes a lot of guts to go up to God and say, Will you do whatever I ask. My boys do that every now and then. Dad, I don't want you to say no. I just want you to say yes. Well, then of course, you know, whatever, whatever I can do to make you happy. Verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. So for all of eternity, can one of us have the best seat and the other one have the second best seat? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, drink the cup and baptize with is not literally talking drink the cup and baptize. Are you able to suffer and go through what I go through? Verse 39, they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. James did. He went through that. And John in his own way did too. John had a ministry from the Lord where the Lord says, John, I'm keeping you on this earth for 90 years because you're going to be so influential because you're going to be the guy that for decades people are going to come up and say, okay, I mean, I've heard the stories about Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. You need to go talk to John. He was with him. He walked with him. He saw it. He was there. John had a very influential ministry. But James got to go home early from work. And what a blessing that is as well. So now Peter's in prison. James has been martyred. Herod sees this as a good thing. He says, let's just wait a few days. Let's get through Passover. I'll kill Peter. And the Jews are going to love me even more. I got him imprisoned. Nothing can happen. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered up to God for him by the church. Do you realize prayer is the one thing you can't guard against? You can't guard against prayer. You can't stop that. So the church is now praying for Peter, and what a miraculous rescue this is going to be. Now, we have to stop here for a second. Didn't the church pray for James? I would assume they would. He didn't seem to get miraculously rescued. So did they pray harder for Peter? Did they pray more for Peter? I mean, there's no reference to them praying for James. I'm assuming they did. I think the problem is we totally misunderstand what prayer is. I mean, we completely misunderstand it. We we treat prayer like some type of Santa Claus thing. Uh, If God is just there for me to tell him everything I want, and he just does it. Lord, I want this today. I want safety to and from work. Uh, Sickness is going around, so I want health. Um, Lord, I, could do a, I would like a better job. I would like this. And we just kind of keep giving him this list. Or we treat prayer like this. We've analyzed the situation. We've thought it through. We've come up to the best conclusion we think is possible. And then we go to God and say, God, will you just okay this, please? Rather than asking him what he thinks. What would happen if we just really stopped and looked at what prayer is biblically and said, that's the way I want to pray? First thing you see with purpose of prayer is this. What is the purpose of prayer? Prayer does not necessarily change the situation. It changes how you deal with the situation. Please remember that. People come up to me all the time and say, I've been praying about it and praying about it and nothing's changed. Prayer may not change the situation. Prayer just changes how you deal with it. If you have a coworker or a friend or family member that is really difficult for you, you can pray for them to get out of the way. You can pray for them to be removed. Or the Lord through prayer may say, I'm just going to change your heart to see them as I see them. You may have a physical issue that you may pray for it to go away, and it doesn't. And the Lord may say, "No, no, I'm going to change your heart so you see this as a blessing, and as you glory in tribulations." It may not change the situation, but it changes your heart. Number two, prayer brings you closer to God because that time that you spend in prayer means you're not spending it in the word. Excuse me, in the world. You're not flipping through the TV stations. You're not doing things you shouldn't be doing. You have an evening and you stop and say, Lord, I'm going to give this to you in prayer this evening instead of just going out and watching this show or doing this, whatever. You get away from the world and you spend time with the Lord. So next thing you know, prayer is actually bringing you closer to the Lord. And lastly, prayer brings us peace. God promises us that. Philippians 4 says this, If you're anxious about anything, by prayer, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ. It's this wonderful deal. I'm really nervous. I'm really worked up. I'm scared about it. I give it to the Lord in prayer. Nothing has changed from the outside. But now my heart's changed. Now I've spent my evening in a good, productive way. And the Lord says, I'll give you peace. What a great deal that is. Now, how are we actually supposed to pray, though? Because the problem is, we sometimes believe that prayer is accomplished by our many words. Depending on how you were raised or maybe what religion you were raised in or what denomination you were raised in, there's almost this push for the more you pray, the more words you say, the more God will listen type thing. That is not a biblical concept in any way whatsoever. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospels that your repetitious prayers accomplish nothing. Think about that for a second. It's not that the more words you say, you'll you'll hear. I mean, think about this from a parenting perspective for you that have children at home. Your kids really want something. They really want it bad. So they come up to you and they ask you. You say no. So they get together and a couple of them ask you, you say no. A few more ask you, you say no. They try to wear you down, don't they? So therefore, once they t- keep asking you and they're trying to wear you down, how often do sometimes as parents say, Fine, I don't care, go have ice cream for breakfast? You know? Just quit talking. Can you imagine if that's the way the Lord worked? Fine, this is awful, this is bad, this is the worst spouse for you, the worst job for you, but you got so many people bugging me, I just want you to be quiet, go. No, the Lord says, no, that's not how it works. But what would happen if we just keep annoying him and annoying him and annoying him? No, that's not the way it works in the Bible. The Lord says it's not by your many words that things will get accomplished. So what are we supposed to do? How do we actually pray then? First thing we see is that there's supposed to be constant prayer. That's what it says right here in Acts 12 verse 5. Now, what does that look like? Because we just said, be careful with your words that it doesn't become just this repetitious, just repeating it. But constant prayer. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, never stop praying. Well, then how am I supposed to never stop praying, but not let it be this vain repetition? I think we sometimes have to rethink a little bit how we pray. The Bible says that we're supposed to offer up prayers with thanksgiving. So what would happen is this. Let's just pick a hypothetical story. Let's say one of your kids is going down a path that they shouldn't be going down. So little Billy is going down this path that he shouldn't go. And so you're really worked up as a parent about Billy. So you sit there and you give Billy over to the Lord. Lord, I, I pray for Billy. I pray to bring people into his life, to really speak to him. Lord, keep Billy on the right path. Watch out for Billy. And you just give your heart over to the Lord. And you get done praying. And then, like, oh, I have Peace. And then 20 minutes later, you're all worked up about Billy again. So what do you do? We go repeat the exact same thing. Oh, Lord, just be with Billy. Just pray you'd be. Wait a second. Did God not hear you the first time? Did he forget? Does this mean we don't pray for little Billy 20 minutes later? No, but how about with this? What would happen if we flip that prayer around and now make it a prayer of thanksgiving? Lord, thank you for hearing what I prayed earlier. Lord, thank you for moving in Billy's life, even though I don't see it. Lord, thank you for bringing people into his life. What would happen if we would give the situation over to the Lord in prayer, and then from that point on, we would constantly just be, Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for the peace you're giving me in this. All of a sudden, instead of turning it around to, I have to remind God every 20 minutes because I think he forgot. Versus, Lord, I've already told you, but now I'm just going to constantly thank you and praise you for moving and working and doing good that I don't see." It frees you. All of a sudden, you don't have to have the perfect wording, the perfect prayer. You can just stop and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for moving and working in ways I don't even see. And so I'm going to be constantly in prayer doing that. Next thing, the Bible says we are supposed to be fervent in prayer. Fervent. James 5, verses 16 through 18 talks about fervency in prayer. Now, what does this look like? We've already established it's not your many words. So does this mean the more emotion I have in prayer, God has to hear me? Nah, we can fake emotion pretty good, can't we? What about if we really do believe it in our heart? How often do we pray things and we really just don't mean it? We pray, but we really don't expect anything to happen. We pray, but it's really just mere words. I mean, I know God can move, but come on, this situation's pretty big right now. What would happen if we had a fervency in prayer where we really do believe that we were coming before the creator of the universe? What would happen if we had a fervency in prayer where we really do believe that God himself is stopping and listening to what I have to say and and really communicating with me? It would change the way you pray. Instead of a ho-hum, already Lord, I give it to you. I pray for health. I pray you'd move. Oh, Lord, I really want my neighbor to be saved. What would happen if we had a fervency and excitement to say, Lord, I really do believe you're moving and working, and I can't wait to see that? See, some of your translations say they were constantly in prayer. Some of them say they were earnestly in prayer. There was a heart to really do believe that God can move, which takes us to our third point about prayer. You're supposed to have faith. Matthew 21, you're supposed to believe that he can do it. See, here's the thing about God. He doesn't have to prove himself to us. See, we as human beings like to use some type of reverse psychology to make people do stuff. God doesn't do that. It's not like I sit here on earth and say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if the Lord can move. God's like, oh, you don't think I can I'll show you. I'll show you. No, he says, I know I can. God doesn't deal with self-esteem issues. He's doing okay. We use reverse psychology. I know I do that a lot with the boys. We're bringing groceries in. There's a lot of groceries to bring in. They're picking up stuff. I'm like, oh, you guys, you're not strong enough to carry two gallons of milk. Oh, yes, I Oh, you are not. Do it. Take two gallons of milk and let me see if you can do that. Oh, you can do two gallons of milk. Wow. I bet you can't get that 50-pound bag of dog food out of my trunk. <laughs> it works. But it doesn't work with God. Oh, God, I, I, bet, you, I bet you can't heal her, Lord. I, mean, I bet you can't. No, he doesn't have to deal with it. So there's a faith element of, Lord, I, I've read this book. I've seen what you've done. I've seen how you moved. I believe that you still can move, and it's an amazing thing. Now, I've, I, okay, now you're thinking, I've done this. I've had constant prayer, fervent prayer, prayers of faith. Still not happening. Okay, now now we have to go to James. James 4, 2, and 3. What does it say there? James 4, 2, and 3 says the reason you don't get things is because you don't ask. How often have we not brought that issue up to the Lord? Because we have some strange theology of, oh, it's a really minor issue. I don't want to bother him. Oh, people have so much bigger problems than I do. It's like God has a limit on what he can hear, so I'll just keep my little problems to myself. That's unbiblical. The Bible says you do not have because you did not ask. Now now you're saying, okay, but James, I've done this. I've had constant prayer, fervent prayer, prayer of faith. I've asked. I'm still not getting it. The second part of James, James 4, 3 says, you don't get it because you're asking out of self-seeking pleasure. The Lord says, I can see your heart, and you're really not wanting it the way you think you want it. I see this a lot in ministry. Oh, I just I just want to see the gospel preached. I just want to see the church full. No, what I really want is a whole lot of numbers and people to look at me and pat me on the back. No, I don't understand. I really just want God to be glorified by everybody telling me how wonderful I am. God says, I see your heart. He goes, I'm going to say no to that one. So what's the real answer then? Can you go with me to 1 John 5? 1 John chapter 5. So put this all together. We're supposed to have constant prayer, fervent prayer, prayer of faith as you're going to 1 John 5. Realizing, ask, but also realizing the Lord will say no if we want to use it on our selfish pleasures. Remember, prayer may not change the situation, but it changes our heart. It brings us closer to the Lord. It gives us a peace, Here's the ultimate one. 1 John 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. That's a great verse. That's a little genie in a bottle verse right there. So whatever I ask, he hears me. And whatever I ask, verse 15, I will have those petitions that I ask of him. Yeah, amen. I've heard pastors take this passage and twist it, twist it to the point, and I'm not making this up, of praying for a certain color vehicle. Because whatever I ask. Yeah, but did we skip over verse 14? This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. His will. So, Lord, I want your will to be done. Your will. What glorifies you the most? What takes me deeper in you the most? What represents you the most? What impacts eternity the most? That's what I want done. So when I pray your will be done, I'm saying, Lord, overrule my wisdom, my intellect, my intelligence, my desires. And Lord, I just want your will to be done. So often we go to prayer and our prayer is, Lord, this is what I want. Give it to me. And God says, that's not healthy or good for you. My will is better. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? So the church is offering up lots of prayer here for Peter, constant prayer. And now here's the miracle that happens back to Acts 12, verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hands of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. What an amazing miracle here that's going on. A couple quick points I would need to make about this. Verse 6, Peter's sleeping. Isn't that fascinating? First off, Peter fell asleep when Jesus said, Would you pray with me in the garden? So he should have stayed awake and he fell asleep. Peter fell asleep at the Mount Transfiguration when he could have seen Jesus coming there and with having uh, Moses and Elijah, but he fell asleep. So here's the time you think Peter should be awake. He's chained to two men awaiting execution. But look how much Peter has matured. He sleeps. Isn't that fascinating? The immature Peter fell asleep when he should have stayed awake. The mature Peter sleeps when we think we should stay awake because of our worry, fear, and anxiety. It's fascinating. Staying up at night worrying will never change a single thing. The Bible says, you sleep, I'll take care of it. What a beautiful prayer to pray is as you go to bed, Lord, it's in your hands. and I know you're going to move and work at night even when I can't move and see. What a blessing that is. So Peter now wakes up, and look how hard he's sleeping. Verse 7, the angel struck Peter on the side. Okay? This is not Peter. Wake up. This is, come on, Peter. We were talking Wednesday night as we're going through Revelation. We got on the subject of angels. And we talked about how angels are very businesslike in the Bible. There is not much chit-chat with angels. They are here to serve. They're here to get the job done. And that's what they're doing. We were joking Wednesday. If you're here at this Wednesday, if we were in this position, what we would do? The angel shows up and says, "Arise quickly." Our first response would be, "Why?" Next one would be, "Gird yourself." Why? Tie on your sandals. Where are we going? Obedience, obedience. We trust that what the Lord is doing, and we got to let go of all these "whys." And so here, the angel's very businesslike. Get up, get dressed, let's go. And then when they get to the big gate, the big iron gate that keeps all the prisoners in, the Bible says it opens to them of its own accord. If you like word studies, that phrase own accord is where we get our English word automated from. The gate just automatically opens from them. Now, how often do we waste so much time worrying about gates that are closed in our lives? And God says, when you get to the gate, I'll open it. Don't worry. I know, Lord, but this, this is big. I know, when you get to the gate, I'll open it for you. Okay, but what are you going to do until then? I'm going to give you peace. Just trust me. When you get to the gate, I'll open it for you. And this is exactly what happened here with Peter. They get to the gate, and and it just automatically opens for you. Let God take care of opening the doors. So Peter is miraculously freed. So what does he do? Verse 12, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. We're introduced to Mark now. This is probably Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And this is Mark that's going to start going on missionary journeys with Paul and Barnabas. Many were gathered together praying. Here he goes. I'm going to go to the church house where they're praying. Verse 13, as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking when they had opened the door and saw him. They were astonished. Now it is easy to pick right here. It is really easy to pick. We can't open the door because we're too busy praying for Peter to be released. We can't go because we're too focused in prayer that the Lord needs to move in Peter's life. What an amazing thing. They were astonished. Same word used to describe how they reacted when the resurrection happened. They couldn't believe it. The same group that was praying for Peter couldn't believe that Peter got out. Now, it's easy to pick on that, but has that not happened to you and I? Somebody comes up to me after church. There's a very serious situation. It sounds very serious. They say, we really need to pray for this. And I say, okay, let's pray. So we pray. And next thing you know, I text them during the week, follow up them and say, hey, how did that situation go? Expecting the worst. And they come back and say, oh, it's amazing. God just moved and worked. And I'm like, he did? Well, yeah. That's what we prayed for. I mean, I know, yes, of course, because I don't doubt. I have faith. But he did? I mean, he really did? I remember one time someone telling me about somebody that we had been praying for a long time to get saved and this person got saved, and my first reaction is, yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, it's probably not real. Yeah, right. This is us. We're going to pray for Peter to be escaped, That when Peter shows up, we're not going to let him in. Boy, oh boy, folks, we got to really realize the way the Lord moves and works, and we really are, and I hope this is a, a something that encourages you. You're just a puzzle piece that God moves around. Isn't that freeing? The world does not rely on you. You know, if something would happen tragically where you would disappear, there would be sadness, there would be mourning, but then life continues. We are puzzle pieces that God moves around. And the one puzzle piece, James, hey, James, come home. Come home. The other puzzle piece, Peter, Peter, I'm going to use you for a while. Isn't it freeing to know we're not the God of our universe? We're not on the throne. God is, and Lord, I am available and willing and ready, and what do you want? I'm willing to do it. A couple of things here about this before we move on. They said it's his angels, verse 15. Jewish tradition at this time said that you had a guardian angel, and the guardian angel looked like you. Which I still find fascinating. Guys, Peter's at the gate. Oh, it's not Peter, it's just his angel. Are they just so used to angels that they don't even want to go see it? Like, why wasn't why, why isn't Peter's angel with Peter? I mean, this to me it they're too busy praying for Peter to get out. We don't have time to stop and look at Peter's angel. Poor Peter escapes, verse 16. He's knocking on the door. He feels he's going to go back to prison. Verse 17, But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, Go tell these things to James and to the brother, This is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, that got saved after the resurrection, who becomes uh, head of the church in Jerusalem, and most people believe wrote the book of James. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. It was Roman rule at the time that if you were a soldier and your prisoner escaped, you would be put to death. Now, I read verse 19, I thought, well, this is not really fair. How the guards supposed to guard against angels in prayer? See, in just a few chapters, in Acts 16, very similar situation. Those jailers get saved, though. See, what that shows me is that these guys, they weren't open to the gospel. But in Acts 16, those guys were. I'm so thankful the Lord knows who's open to the gospel and who's not. We spend so much time and energy trying to force the gospel of Jesus Christ towards people. And really what it comes down to is I'm just supposed to be a messenger to present it. And then, Lord, I plant the seeds and I get out of the way. So let the Lord deal with it. Let the Lord take care of it. If you have a loved one who's not saved and you are just really fervently, passionately praying for them to come know Christ. And you may even realize, I'm going to see them this Thanksgiving. It's my once or twice a year that I see them. Plant a seed and get out of the way. What a beautiful thing that is. Just to let the Lord take the conversation and, and go with it. And you just never know where the Lord's going to take him. I, I got a, a haircut yesterday because Dawn always says I start to look homeless. So she goes, you need to get a haircut and you get, it, get your beard trimmed. So I was doing a hospital visit and I swung through on the way home and I said, okay, I'm going to run in. And I, I love getting my haircut because you have one-on-one with somebody. And, and I'm not, almost every single time I get my haircut, the Lord really just opens the door. So I'm talking to this gal. And it's getting ready for her to go home. The day is almost over for her. And it was like one of those like, hey, I'm really sorry to bother you at work. I mean, you obviously don't want to be here. She didn't want to talk or anything. So finally, we're talking about the roads. I'm over in Finley. And she was talking about 224, that uh, she's got to get back to Ottawa. And this is the way I do it. Um, Anytime I'm talking to someone, it's like, okay, Lord, how, how are we going to bring God up? And then once we bring God up, we're just going to trust that the Lord's going to move and work. So I'm always, it's like a little game. And I love this. How is somehow is God going to come up? And I'm just always waiting. So she goes, I "Go Ottawa." I said, "Oh, you're from Ottawa." She goes, "Yeah, I lived in Ottawa my whole life." Okay, this is good. Lived in Ottawa your whole life. I said, so "I said, oh, okay." I thought, how do I bring the Lord up? So I'm going to ask her what school she went to. Okay, so where'd you go? Did you go to the Catholic school? Or did you go to the public school? Oh, I went to the public school. I said, "Oh, okay." She goes, "Yeah, I'm not." I'm, she goes, "Something about," I'm repeating her. Don't get mad at me. Something about those Catholics or something like that. So I said, oh, so you're not Catholic. She goes, no. So I said, I thought everybody in Ottawa was Catholic. I just, I'm, not, I'm not being mean. Don't, just please don't get mad at me. Just wanting to see what she would say. So she goes, well, everybody in Ottawa is Catholic except for my family. Ah, oh, what are you? Well, we're nothing. Ha, ha, ha. That's what I was waiting for, lady. You're nothing. So what do you mean you're nothing? Oh, I don't believe. Oh, you don't. And then it was great. It was great. I don't even know how that works into the message, but there you go. Somebody shared <laughs> so you plant a seed, and you get out of the way. And so we start talking about truth, and what is your truth? Well, she has truth. Well, how can you have truth if you believe in nothing? And what, is how, what happens if your truth contradicts my truth? And that's the beauty of Christianity is Jesus is the truth. And it was just this great conversation. And it's like, okay, Lord, I just got to plant a seed and get out of the way. So did she hit her knees right then and accept Jesus Christ? No. But you know what? We planted seeds, and we'll see what happens. And I trust that the Lord is moving and working. So now, Herod is still a problem. He obviously has no love for the church, willing to kill James, willing to kill soldiers where Peter escaped. He knows the Jews are going to be upset. What's going to happen with Herod now? Verse 20. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyra and Sidon. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, Tyre and Sidon are along the Mediterranean Sea. We're getting pretty far north now of Jerusalem. But they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. And they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Politics. We've got to be good friends with Herod because Herod is how we get our food. Verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. Now, there's a historian by the name of Josephus who is a contemporary at this time. And he wrote secular history. And he actually mentions this account. Herod put on silver. So when he would stand in the sun, he would just shine. So the sunlight's reflecting off him. He's giving this speech. Verse 22, politically speaking, the people say, we need to to put this guy up on a pedestal. The voice of a God and not a man. Verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's not a verse you see a lot in the Bible, is it? Josephus says that's what happened. They said that uh, Herod became sick, and five days later he died, and that he was full of worms. So this was not like a worm came out of the ground. I know that would look cooler. It's not that. This is from the inside out, not the outside in. But look at verse 24. The word of God grew and multiplied. Okay, after this chapter of James being killed, Peter being imprisoned, the word of God grows and multiplies. See, that's what it's about, folks, is anything that's happening in your life right now, you stop and say, but Lord, how is this going to help the word of God grow and multiply? How, how can this be used by you to further the gospel, to represent Jesus to people that need to hear it? I'm not liking this trial. I'm not liking this tribulation. I'm not liking where I'm in life. But the Bible says you are good and do good. I will trust your definition of good, Lord, not mine. And I will do constant prayer, fervent prayer, prayers of faith, prayers of trusting your will. Because I know that time of prayer is going to grow me closer to you. It may not change the situation but it changes the way I deal with the situation. And this puts us in really good shape for next week as we now get into the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. And I just want to encourage you, next week we're going to be talking about knowing God's will and calling in your life. And that question comes up a lot. How am I supposed to know what God wants me to do? At the beginning of Acts 13, it does a great job of showing us examples of how knowing what we're supposed to be doing in the Lord's will is. So I hope you can make it for that. Hey, worship team, if you can come forward here. I don't know what you're facing today. You may be the James situation where death is there and there is no hope. You may be the Peter situation where you feel chained, but God wants to miraculously move in your life. I know this, whatever you're facing, the Lord is there and he is good and does good. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, I just want to give this over to you. If there's anybody here that just feels defeated, feels unchained, Lord, show them that you're still moving and working. Lord, if there's someone here that's just giving it over to you in prayer and they're not seeing that answer they're looking for, help them to know in faith that your answer is better and we just trust your moving and working. Lord, there may be somebody here today that has a Herod in their life that's really difficult. Lord, we know that you'll take care of that in your time. Thank you for being a God that hears and listens and help us, Lord, to always want to focus on your word growing and multiplying. That's all that matters. And Lord, for the time of food and fellowship in the back, we pray it is a time of food and fellowship. Your word says that you listen in on our conversations. We pray that these conversations would be for your glory as we have true fellowship in you. Thank you in your name. Amen.